Well, we started a short sermon series last week titled God With Us in light of Advent and this season coming up uh, in Christmas. And last week we looked at how God is a God who works in our waiting, right? Seasons of waiting are not easy. We talk about how in the West here it almost seems like an inconvenience or something that shouldn't happen. But biblically speaking, particularly in the leading up to Christ, waiting is a very normal Christian practice. And today what I hope to show us from our text is how God is not only with us in our waiting, but God particularly is involved with us in our brokenness, in our brokenness. And in order to do that, we're going to be looking at one of the most overlooked or skimmed over passages in all the New Testament. And it's going to be found in the very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, where the famous popularized genealogy of Jesus that nobody likes to read is recorded. So if you have your Bible or your bulletins, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy spans 17 verses, and the whole text is in the bulletin just to give you an idea of it. But I'm going to read verse 1 to 7, and then we'll skip to verse 12 to 17. So uh, here at our church, we believe every time we open God's Word that God is present, living, active, and speaking. So can we all rise together as we open God's Word uh, and we hear the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 1, starting from verse 1. This is the reading of God's Word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, skip to verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. And Abud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Let me pray for us. Father, as we open your word, we believe that it is true, it is relevant, authoritative, and has something to say to us today. Even in passages and texts that may seem irrelevant, we pray all the more that we can dig in deeper and ask your spirit to reveal to us a message you have for us, particularly in this Advent season. So once you be with us during this time, may your spirit move and work through your word. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, we did it. I probably pronounced maybe 70% of that incorrect, but you'll never know. So it's all good. As long as you say it confidently, people think you got it. But, uh, you know, the holiday season is typically a time for family. I think we all understand that. I'm sure many of you have spent time with your family or plan to spend time with your family. And I shared last week, if you're here, but it was meaningful because I got to spend time with family as well for Thanksgiving. And one of the more meaningful times I got to spend actually was with my parents. I don't get to see them a lot of the time, so I really wanted to be intentional. And one of the things we were doing as they came here, so they live in Korea, and then when they came, we said, we got to clean out my garage because when they moved to Korea, it was somewhat abrupt. So they just left everything. 
They just put a bunch of stuff in boxes. We don't know what's where. And they just left it in my garage. They said, hey, let's kind of figure it out, throw stuff that needs to get thrown out, and kind of sort everything. So late night, uh, after the kids were down, we were just kind of with our thick jackets because it was cold, looking through some belongings. And I opened one box that was filled with old photo albums, right? Photo albums, you know, those ancient things where they used to have to print out photos back in the day. Now it's all Google Photos and somewhere in the cloud. But back then, there was physical photo albums. And I came across one of their old wedding photos in the 80s. And, you know, they look different, right? It's crazy that I'm, I begin to think I actually start to look like my dad, right? It's kind of crazy to me. And I had this curiosity of asking them, like, hey, tell me more about your youth. Like, how you were when you were younger, like, do you see parallels between how you see me, whether physically or my behavior and how you looked? And I was just asking them, and, you know, I was so interested in just, like, my parents, right? Because they're my parents. I'm curious what has, you know, crossed over into in this generation of me my, and my siblings. And I, as we were talking, I was looking through things, and another photo came up that was even more interesting was this black and white photo of a lady that didn't initially look familiar to me. So I said, oh, Dad, who's this? And he said, oh, that's my mom. That's your grandma. And I, I, the reason it wasn't familiar is because I've never met my grandma on my dad's side. I've never met either grandparents on my parents' side or on my dad's side because uh, they passed away before I was born. And so that made me even more curious. I wanted to know about her. I wanted to know about my, my, grand, my grandpa. And my dad would tell me, yeah, like, there's certain things you do that remind me so much of your grandpa. Like, he loved music. That's why I think you're into music. There's certain personality traits. And it was just fascinating for me to know that I'm not just this isolated person that plopped out of nowhere, but I have a whole family ancestry and lineage of where I come from and things that have been passed down. And I share this because I'm not alone when it comes to being curious about family history, I'm sure. In fact, in the past few years, there's been an exponential rise in people taking interest to find more about their genealogy and family ancestry. I don't know if you knew that. In America in particular, uh, genealogical subscription services like Ancestry.com, they've actually skyrocketed in popularity and even profitability. And the reason why, I think it's captured well uh, in this article I found in Psychology Today. The author writes, this is the case why people are so obsessed with it. Quote, he writes, We've become a nation of archaeologists excavating the past to better understand ourselves. We search out of a sense of rootlessness. We look because human beings are natural-born storytellers, and we want to know how our once upon a time fits into the narratives of our lives. We look because genealogy has a way of making abstract history real, and we want to know if the past has guidance for us. In light of that, Christmas is about the entrance and birth of Jesus into this world. We all know that. We know that Jesus is the reason for the season. But what Matthew does in starting the New Testament with not just Jesus appeared, but where he came from in his genealogy, is it, number one, grounds Jesus in concrete history. He didn't just plop out of the air one day and he's just this kind of person and figure, but he has a, a place in history. He has a legitimate family lineage, and it sets the tone and the grander story and context for what the climax of Jesus' arrival actually signifies for history, in that context, and even for us today. And the more I studied this text, I know it sounds super boring, father, 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 but if you get into the meat of it, it is so rich, and the gospel is actually embedded in this genealogy. So if genealogies help you understand who a person is and where they came from, what does Matthew 1 tell us about who Jesus is, especially in this Advent season? And there's a lot that can be said, but four things I want to point out for us. Number one, it shows us that Jesus identifies with sinners. He identifies with sinners. Number two, Jesus includes the excluded. 
Number three, Jesus redeems the broken. And fourthly, Jesus is the way to true rest. Okay, so first, Jesus identifies with sinners. Uh, Before anything else, it's important to understand how genealogies were used and understood in the ancient world, right? Because today, if I meet you and you want to know about me, I don't tell you, well, my name is Sam, fathered by Myung Hwan Bae, fathered by, you know, like, you don't introduce yourself with your family lineage. We don't do that today. And so back then, it's helpful to understand the way we use resumes today is actually very similar to how they use genealogies back in the day, right? We all know that on our resumes, the way that we establish our value and worth today, it's more tied to our personal accomplishments, right? Our personal abilities, our personal accolades, Things like, I went to school here, I was in this position, I won this kind of reward. So when we apply for a job, first thing you do, you pull out your resume, and we all edit them, don't we? We edit it to include things that make us look good, that we feel like is going to help us put our best foot forward. And at the same time, we omit or remove things that we are ashamed of, or feel like won't give us a good chance to look good and make a good impression. Genealogies functioned the same way back then, because back then it wasn't about personal accolades, it was all about family. It was all about whose son are you, whose daughter are you, who are you related to? Is there someone in your family lineage that is noteworthy? And so what they would do back then is they would brag about these, you know, famous noteworthy figures, like, hey, I'm related to so-and-so, and they have this much money and this much property. And on the flip side, they would not really talk about those who might bring shame or maybe who weren't respected. In fact, it's commonly understood Herod the Great, the infamous king who murdered all the children under two during Jesus' time, he literally handcrafted his genealogy to get rid of everybody he didn't want to be associated with, even though they were his legitimate family. Right? It reminds me of the popular uh, movie. This is the only movie I know where the song is more popular than the movie, Encanto. Right? I actually don't know the movie, but I know the song. And if you didn't watch it, it's basically all about this family madrigal, right? This madrigal family, everybody is so super tight. They're all tight-knit in their relationships. They're all unique in that way. But in the beginning of the movie, you, you don't hear anything about one of the family members. And that's where it's the famous song, right? The girl finds out, how come I don't know about this uncle? And they say, well, it's we don't talk about Bruno. And there's a meme about that, right? Like, there's certain people we don't talk about. And he's kind of seen as this villain-like person that brings shame to the family. And as weird as that might sound, we actually kind of do that today, don't we? Particularly Asian, Asian parents take pride in certain children that are, maybe go to UCLA or, like, you know, they have great accolades. But they don't really talk about the ones that maybe aren't that impressive. We do that. We do that even today. So with that context, think about this. God Almighty could have crafted a near-amazing genealogical resume for Jesus, right? And he would be right in doing so. Like, this is the pure Son of God, the spotless Lamb of God. And for all of history, it could have been written down, look at the pure lineage of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he could have sovereignly ensured to preserve the purity of that royal lineage that Jesus would eventually come from. But even a slight look at this actual genealogy, it is not an exaggeration to say that this is one of the most messed up, sinful, twisted genealogies that you could potentially come up with in Scripture. Fascinating. For example, even the first two names you might be familiar with, David and Abraham, right? This is the one-two punch of the Jewish Christian faith because these two are arguably the most important when it comes to lineage. Uh, Without getting into detail, here's why. Jesus has to come from the line of David for him to be royally fit to take the throne. 
And the Jews would know that. So they're watching closely. Is he, is he from the line of David? He has to be from the line of Abraham for him to be the promise of the covenant that through the descendants of Abraham, he would bless all nations. So Jesus is fulfilling both of those covenants, right? The Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And so you would think at least Abraham and David, can they be like spotless? Can they be like really, really good guys? Unfortunately, what scripture highlights is they all have significant failures. Abraham is a liar, a deceiver, lies about his identity of his wife two times. David, more famously, is an adulterer. And this is 1A and 1B of Jesus' lineage. They are broken people. And if we, if we had time, I'd go name by name, but just to give you sentence snapshots, Jacob was a cheater, Judah was a fornicator, David again was an adulterer and a murderer, Solomon was a polygamist, Ahaz was an ungodly king that worshipped pagan gods, Manasseh was the most evil king Israel had ever seen, and the list goes on. So the question is, why would God bring Jesus from such a sinful, broken lineage, one, and two, make it known for all history to plainly see through this written recorded genealogy that that is the case? The answer is simple. Because the sinners that Jesus comes from are the sinners that Jesus came for. That's what's going on. And one of the points of emphasis that Matthew in particular gives in his gospel account that he just wanted everybody to understand because they could not get it is that Jesus was a friend of sinners. They pictured this pure, holy, he can only be around the goody-two-shoes Christians. And what Matthew's trying to show from the very get-go, and the genealogy proves this, is Jesus is a friend of sinners, not an enemy of sinners. I like how one commentator summarizes it. Frederick Bruner says, quote, One gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament records until he could find the most questionable ancestors of Jesus available in order to, in turn, insert them into his record and so then to preach the gospel. The gospel that is that God can overcome and forgive sin and can use soiled but repentant persons for his great great purposes in history. So what is the quick implication of this? Why is this good news, right? Gospel is good news. Why is it good news for us today as Christians? And why is it good news for you to consider if you aren't a Christian or you're curious? Because the good news of the gospel that is infused within this historic genealogy of Jesus is the only qualification that you need to have to be a part of God's family is to be a sinner. That is quite liberating And yet so many of us have a hard time admitting that, don't we? That we are broken. Every single one of us is in need. And it's a lot easier said than done in this resume, editing, Instagram culture we live in because the air we breathe now is what? Reflect the best and put your best foot forward and hide the skeletons in your closet, the things you're ashamed of, the things you think will make you look bad or lose rapport publicly. Every single one of us here in this room has a skeleton or skeletons in our closet, which if you don't know what that means, it's a figure of speech to say there is something that if revealed would damage your reputation, would make you feel less lovable and valuable in the eyes of the world, which is why you keep it in the closet. But God embeds his gracious character in that he almost goes out of his way throughout redemptive history to infuse within this drawn-out lineage of Christ that Jesus identifies on purpose with sinners, not just as acquaintances, but as family. And he doesn't try to hide it, but he instead wants to proclaim it through his everlasting word to show this today. If any of you here today feel like you come from a broken past, 
dysfunctional family, you feel broken over your sin, Jesus says, me too. That's exactly what I come from. I understand. And this is why religious people just did not get Jesus. They hated this about him, that at his core, he identified with and was a friend of sinners. Point number two, Jesus includes the excluded. Almost every commentator will tell you that if a Jewish reader at first glance read this genealogy, there would have been one main shocking factor that all of them would agree upon. And it's this. It is the inclusion of women. Now, before you cancel me, because that's a very bold statement in today's day and age, please know back then, Jewish culture, absolutely patriarchal. This was not weird. Women were almost never included in genealogies, right? The honor was typically reserved for men who were viewed as the head of the household. But here we see in Jesus' genealogy the inclusion of not just one woman, but four women, not counting Mary, so technically five, but four that will highlight who are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, who's not even mentioned by name, but we know it's Bathsheba. And it would have been scandalous enough just to include women, but what makes it exponentially more shocking is, remember, Matthew could pick any woman he wants in the lineage of Jesus. It's not like these were the only four women. He is very selective and intentional about who he's including and not including for the purpose of emphasis. And you would think, if you're going to pick four women, pick the matriarchs of the faith, like Abraham's wife, Sarah, or Rebecca, or Leah. But the four women listed are the definition of social outcasts. Not welcome in the Jewish community. For two main reasons. Number one, most likely they're all Gentiles. They're not part of God's chosen people. Gentile, by definition, was a non-Jew. And it wasn't just like, okay, you're not a Jew. Jews viewed Gentiles as unclean, as dirty, right? They were not welcome with God's people. And in fact, as offensive as it may sound, just to give you a context, to be a woman and a Gentile, it said that Jewish men would wake up every morning and say this prayer daily. Thank you, God, for making me a man and not a woman and making me a Jew and not a Gentile. That's literally what they would think about them. And yet included, we have four Gentile women. Tamar and Rahab were likely Canaanites, which are enemies. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba is unknown, but many say likely she might have been a Hittite because she was married to Uriah the Hittite. And as harsh as it may sound, they legitimately, by definition, did not belong. They really were outcasts. And not only were they Gentiles, but number two, they all have, to put it lightly, serious moral question marks on their lives. If you don't know who these women are, just to give a brief snapshot of each of them, I think there's a graphic up there. Tamar is more famously known for involving in incest, immorality, pretending to be a prostitute to get her purpose done, and she's a Gentile. Rahab was a prostitute as well. She was involved in lying and deception, was a Canaanite woman. Ruth, a woman from Moab. Moabites were seen as unclean because they were born out of incest and adultery. I mean, Bathsheba, we all know the story of King David most famously committed adultery. So these women, one, in very sense of the word, they represent outsiders that don't belong. Outsiders because of racial reasons, moral reasons, cultural reasons, gender reasons. In fact, even the law back then said they're not even allowed to be in the presence of God. So society, culture, social norms, law all exclude them. And yet here they are listed as the four key figures in the family lineage of Jesus. And what Jesus is modeling and showing here is while the whole world outcasts these women, Jesus brings them in. 
he includes them. And it's without question that Jewish readers would have been shell-shocked to see their prized King David and the prostitute Gentile Rahab in the same sentence, same paragraph, same breath. That would be shocking to them. And yet here we see that in the scriptures. Now, just a quick caveat here. Um, If you actually take time to read the stories of this woman, you'll quickly realize that not just their stories, but stories of sinners in general oftentimes are a lot more complicated and complex than you would think. Is that not your experience? Like when you come to a, a small group or a pastor and you say, Pastor, I'm struggling with this. And then the pastor immediately judges you and labels you by that sin and says, oh, you're struggling with lust? You're, you're just a luster or you're a perverted. And without you ever being able to explain your situation, explain the context, explain the tension, the nitty-grittiness of how life and circumstances and the fallen, broken world have led to this, doesn't it make you feel so not understood and so not welcomed? Some of you guys probably did that with these four women. I never heard of them before, but Tamar, oh, disgusting. Ruth, what the? But if you took time to read their stories, for example, Bathsheba, yes, she was an adulterer, but did she technically do anything wrong? She took a shower. It was King David that messed up her life, isn't it? Now, that's not to say what she did was okay, but it's complicated. Rahab, she was a Gentile prostitute, but she was also one of the most loyal, faithful people who had faith in Israel's God to redeem and deliver her. She protected the Israelite spies. So it's more complicated. Tamar committed incest, disgusting on paper. But people don't know. She was stuck in two bad marriages to evil husbands. And her father-in-law basically pretended to say, I'll give you another husband. But in reality, he wanted to be outcasted and go die. So talk about being stuck between a rock and a hard place that she's forced to now enter into this sinful situation where she pretends to be a prostitute. All that is to say, it doesn't make their actions okay. But what it does is it makes the characters of Scripture more real, more relatable. Because life is often much more complicated and complex than just that sin that you're struggling with. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but I I like how one author describes it. He says, quote, The women in Jesus' lineage speak of other things as well. In the first place, they're real women with complex and sometimes messy lives that cannot be reduced to stereotypes. They ground the Christmas story in an authentic earthiness. Their presence counteracts the tendency to idealize the Lord's male ancestors as shiny, perfect heroes. And instead, I love this, they draw the focus back to the Messiah where it belongs. Perhaps most important, these women are reminders that Jesus came into the world to save all kinds of people. Women, men, pagans, Jews, prostitutes, immigrant widows, and queen mothers. And so we see embedded in the genealogy a gracious invitation, inclusion, and embracing of anyone who considers themselves an outcast. Anyone who considers themselves excluded and not welcome. Which leads to point number three, Jesus redeems the broken. Now I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about the idea of brokenness because I think all of us to one degree or another kind of have an idea of what brokenness is because nine out of ten people, if I ask you, like, hey, have you been broken before, experienced brokenness? Most people will say yes, but they have a hard time defining what they mean by that and what that experience actually is. So let me just give a definition to kind of help kick off this portion. Uh, I like this one. It says the word brokenness, it refers to the state of surrender and defeat we experience when hardship comes into our typically steady and painless life. And I like the two categories here. Sometimes brokenness before God is the result of sin 
our own sin or someone else's. And other times, it can be the result of circumstances. No one enjoys the feeling of brokenness, but the powerful benefit it brings to our spiritual growth are immense. Again, I like it because the two categories it provides. Some of you experience brokenness, and it's your fault in a sense. It is because of your own sins. It is because of your own mistakes, past or present. And this type of brokenness kind of manifests in things like shame or guilt or regret over something that you may have done. And a lot of us carry that kind of brokenness even here today. And we're not sure what to do with it. It eats away our self-worth and security. And second, though, there's a type of brokenness that comes as a result of things outside of your control. Be it a difficult circumstance or unexpected hardship. For example, the loss of a loved one. Out of your control. Nothing you did or didn't do for that to happen. Or a family member gets really sick, gets cancer. Or something you've been praying for and think is a really good thing doesn't pan out the way you hoped. Now, one thing we share at our church regularly, um, Pastor Tom shares it more because he's a little more doom and gloom than I am. (laughs) So for every five times he shares, I share it once. But life is tough. We're not that old as a church, but I think we're going to enter in the next five to ten years or so just the reality of how real, brutal life can get. And we should not be surprised by that because when you have a broken world and broken people, you're going to experience brokenness. It should not surprise us. Here in the suburbs, in the comfortable Orange County, we get confused when brokenness hits our face. Just go to any major city, brokenness is filling the streets. Brokenness is all around the world. Brokenness has been invading and entering God's otherwise good creation ever since the fall. And life, if you haven't experienced it already, life will break you. One way or another, whether it's through your own mistakes, which we all make, or externally through hard times, like The unexpected loss of a job, financial difficulties, loneliness, rejection. Or a more explicit example that I think a lot of us have, but we don't know what to do with, we're coming for a broken family. Maybe it's a single parent home, or maybe there's a clear sin and division that's still present within the home, or maybe it's a divorced parent home, or maybe you even have, whatever it might be, broken families are a very normal reality, unfortunately, that not many people talk about. And I personally had a similar experience with my family as well. And left to ourselves, I think there's basically two ways that you can deal with brokenness. Either you can acknowledge the brokenness and allow it to basically define you because of how powerful and painful it is, and you will forever live with the sense that you are now broken, a sense of inadequacy or self-condemnation, or feeling like you are less than ideal, or, like a lot of us do, you can ignore it and hide it. For example, when I used to do college group, we used to do something called Life Maps, which is basically an organized way to share a testimony. And what we do is we do red stickies for difficult hardships or broken situations in life. And you always knew that someone's ignoring it, or let me, let me take a step back. You always knew someone's the first category where it's defining them because when the red sticky would come up, they would literally just implode and become super emotional because it is literally their identity. Or the other flip side, someone will share a red sticky and say something like, yeah, I've never had parents. I'm just using an analogy. Uh, this wasn't an actual person. I've never had parents. And you ask them, how does that make you feel? And they'll say, I'm fine. Oh, it's all good. Yeah. It's no big deal. 10 out of 10 people will tell you that is a very big deal. But what they're doing is they're ignoring and suppressing brokenness because the flip side is too painful. So which is the better option? 
They both stink. They're not good options. Like imagine for illustration's sake, you are a bowl, a complete beautiful bowl, and you get dropped and you break into pieces. You cannot fix yourself. You will forever be less than what you were prior, and whatever caused you to break is now going to be defining you unless something happens. My son Ezra, he has high taste. And whenever he picks up a toy, or the other day he actually dropped a piece of glass or like a glass bowl, it broke. And he has this thing where anything broken belongs in the trash. <laughs> so he'll be like, it's broken. And I'm like, what are you going to do? Trash. And it's broken. Oh, you're going to fix it? No, trash. And oh, that's kind of the Western mentality. That broken things are, are broken. Like, you throw those things away. They don't belong in normal life. Broken things are almost like a, a stain and a taint to normal reality. Well, that's where Jesus enters the picture, though. And he provides a third option. Where your brokenness doesn't define you, nor do you ignore it, but Jesus, a third party, comes in and says, how about I redeem it? I redeem your brokenness so that it doesn't define you, or it's not harbored in you, but it transforms you. And I use the image of a bowl intentionally to lead to a little bit of longer illustration. This may be a common sermon illustration, but it was new to me, and I never heard of it before. So let me start by showing you an image. It's an image of this bowl, okay? Now, this is a bowl, obviously, that was previously broken. But it has been repaired and restored by something called, I'm going to butcher this world, okay? Um, Saya, don't get mad at me, right? It's a Japanese word. I asked her to tell me how to say it, and I already forgot. But kintsugi, okay? Kintsugi is this Japanese art of repairing broken pottery. It's a literal art by mending areas of breakage with a special lacquer, which is dusted with gold, as you can see there. And it's not just a pottery art. It's a whole philosophy behind it, which says that areas of brokenness should be viewed as part of the beautiful history of an object to highlight rather than something to disguise. That's probably why so many pastors use it. Like, it's so good, right? In other words, the whole art and premise of kintsugi is based on highlighting and emphasizing imperfections and restoring broken things to give them new life. So before that was just a bowl, but now it is that bowl. Unique and better than it ever could have been had it not been broken. Now if we're honest with ourselves, how many of us have experienced brokenness before? Obviously we don't like to talk about it, we don't like to admit it. But how many of you have lost a sense of self-worth as a result? Or at least feel like you're less worthy of being loved and valued before others and before God? You see, unfortunately, the world we live in, like I said before, sin, brokenness entered. Now we have a world filled with broken people who do everything they can to hide their brokenness. And yet through his genealogy and entrance into the world, Jesus is saying, I love there's nothing more I love than to basically practice the art of kintsugi on my people. To mend brokenness, to redeem it, to restore it, to make it more beautiful, to connect it to the grander story of the gospel. And when you think about it that way, this picture, imagine many more breaks and tears and, and breakages is the picture of Jesus' genealogy. The entire genealogy of Christ is not about the status or pedigree of the people. It is about their united collective brokenness. Because in the genealogy, you have kings, prostitutes, 
slaves, free, men, women, Jew, and Gentile? What could possibly unite these vast different categories of people other than the fact that before God, they all sit equally in need of redemption? Sitting here today, I don't care who you are, do you feel superior to people around you? Do you feel like you are better than your neighbors? You have totally vastly forgotten the gospel. All of us, kings and prostitutes alike, sit equal before our need for grace. There's no one too great or so holy that isn't in need of God's grace, and no one's too sinful to not be invited. So what does this mean practically? It means that when we place our faith in Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us in his death and resurrection, there is a third option where you no longer need to carry or suppress your brokenness, but you can now surrender it to Jesus again. To use the analogy, who is the ultimate Kintsugi artist, and we see that embedded throughout Scripture through boring things like genealogies. And the beauty is he promises to not only be God the artist, that is working in the restoration of these areas of brokenness, but he also is himself the gold that binds and heals and makes us whole. He is both and. He is the solution provider, and he himself is the solution. So no matter what your past or present feels like, Advent reminds us Jesus can redeem, restore, and save you because that's what his family genealogy proves, and that's what he came to do, which leads to the final point. Jesus is the way to true rest. You see, one of the greatest results of the fall when, when Adam and Eve originally sinned was that the human condition fell into a state of perpetual weariness. Anyone feel weary in here today? Amen, right? Think about it. What was the curse? The curse was not that now you need to work. Okay? People, people get kind of like mind-blown when I'm like, you know, you're going to have a job in heaven. You're still going to work. Adam worked really hard before the fall. The only difference is God said now work's going to be wearisome. It's going to be a burden. You're going to toil and you're going to strive. Even childbirth is going to be painful. So pain, tiredness, weariness, the lack of rest and peace, that's what happened when brokenness entered the world. And whether it's external work or whether it's relational brokenness now that because we have become sinful and so self-aware of our own needs before others or even our own sins, one thing we had in the Garden of Eden that's not really emphasized was true rest. Like I think I'm not that old, but the older I get, what makes me excited about heaven is eternal rest. That's what it's seen as, right? When Jesus, the good and faithful servant, what does he say? He says, now my servant, enter into my master's rest. No more burden, no more stress, no more anxiety, no more what am I going to do with my life. You can now come have rest. Story of Christmas that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The world has no peace and yet he's going to come to bring peace. And the story of Scripture since Genesis, it is tracking the promise of God that we would once again have a way to enter that rest that we have so lost and longed for since the Garden of Eden. Well, there's a detail in the genealogy of Jesus that I did not pick up on, all credit to these commentators and Pastor Tim Keller, but it is a profound one that gives the answer to that rest. Look at me at verse 17. Interesting detail here, right? It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David, so that's one dispensation of history, 14 generations. And then from David to the exile deportation to Babylon, another 14 generations. And then from the exile to Babylon to Christ is another 14 generations. What's going on here? What are these numbers? Remember, Matthew specifically crafted this genealogy down to the T. 
inserting people, omitting others, and even the number of generations he's communicating a message. In fact, if you look at the history, for example, it wasn't actually 14 for some of them. He has handcrafted it to be that way. And so verse 17 tells us what? There's three sets of 14 generations. Now, bear with me getting a little Bible nerdy here. But three sets of 14 is equivalent to what? Six sets of seven, right? Seven, 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 seven. What am I getting at here? Numbers are very significant in the Bible. They're not random. They're important, right? The number three is important in the Bible. Number 40 is important. But arguably one of the most important numbers in the scripture is the number seven. The number seven represents completion and perfection in the Bible. Therefore pointing to the idea of rest. For example, in the creation, what does God do? God works for six days. And then on the seventh, it is completed and he rests. You see this in the Old Testament law. God tells his nation Israel, every seven years, rest, right? In fact, you see this in some churches. That's the, the logic behind sabbaticals for pastors. Work seven years and then rest. I, I wish it wasn't the case, right? Because I have many more years to go. But that's one thing there. But there's a special year where every seventh seven year, okay? So there's every seven year normal rest. But every seventh seven years, so 49 years if I'm not mistaken, Leviticus chapter 25 talks about something called the year of Jubilee, which is especially significant because that's the year where all debts in Israel are to be forgiven. All slaves are to be freed. It is a picture of penultimate rest, restoration, freedom, basically like a new beginning and a fresh start. In other words, it is not a coincidence how Matthew has arranged this genealogy. He is showing that throughout redemptive history since Genesis 3, the problem has always been lack of peace, weariness, sin, and brokenness. And the world has thrown various things to try to solve this problem. A new way to live, self-help, moral behavioral change, religious philosophies, a set of rules to follow. But instead, what do we see? The answer to finding true rest, it is in the seventh, seventh generation and entrance and birth of a person. Jesus Christ. It is in the historic, real person of Jesus who comes. Why? Because what we need more than anything else, our weariness ultimately comes not from external things, but it comes from our internal severed relationship with God. And Christ comes to answer that. Now, practically, what does that look like? What does it mean, though? Like, okay, so through Jesus, I find rest? Absolutely. Because through Jesus, you no longer have to find like you have to prove yourself. You don't need to live life as if you have to prove your worth because why? In Christ and in the gospel, you are perfectly loved and accepted. And here's the burden I have. So many of you technically know this, but you live as if you don't. That's why time and time again, Paul says, I can say all these things, but to me, the power of the gospel, I will come to you and only preach the power of Christ and him crucified, even if I sound like a beating a dead horse because you keep forgetting and you keep living like that's not the case. So the power is in the gospel of Christ that he has died for you, he has resurrected, and you no longer need to find your worth outside of him. That through Jesus, you don't have to question your life anymore. Am I doing the right decision? Is my life going to pan out okay? Why? Because as Romans 8 says, you have a Kintsugi artist Savior who has worked all things for your good in brokenness, 
in waiting. And so therefore, most importantly, you do not need to crave and fight to earn love from your spouse or your friends or your family because in the gospel it has been given to you perfectly through Christ. And now through his spirit, Christians now smell and look different because while everyone is trying to get those things, because you've been given those things, you can now give out those things. That's the formula of Christianity. So two quick conclusions and we'll be done. Number one, for some of us, we should be challenged, therefore, to see how different we look from Jesus when it comes to how welcoming and inclusive he is of those who would otherwise be considered not welcome. This is a burden um, in my own life because those we choose to practice relational community with, it doesn't seem like a big deal. If anything, the church has done a lot of things to kind of Tell people, hey, you don't have to be friends with everyone. You don't really need to include everyone. And there is some wisdom to that, but I think there's an equal push and pull when it comes to who Jesus is that he gravitates towards the outcast. That he extends his arm to the marginalized. That his family is filled with broken people in need of a savior. And how we portray that in our community and in our church has a correlation to our understanding of the gospel. So something to consider. But secondly... Those who are going through a season of brokenness for whatever reason, I pray in this Advent season, you can take heart and be encouraged that God is a God who loves to redeem, to restore, and that right now, if you feel like a broken bowl or clay pot, his arms are ready to redeem and restore. So I invite the praise team up right now. If I can just leave us in a quick prayer, prayer topic and uh, reflection. First, and I guess the lighting is fitting. We didn't plan this, but if there's anything that you personally... Uh, want to surrender to the Lord, I encourage you to do that now, be it a broken situation, a broken relationship, an unchecked pattern of, of brokenness as a result of sin, whatever it might be. The end of the year in Advent season is the time to do that. So take some time to come before him. And again, I encourage you to do it without filters, without edits, because that is the place of honesty and humility that Jesus desires to meet us. So let's take a brief moment and then I'll close for us.